Well, hey, today, this week was a great week in the life of the jar. Uh, it started out on Monday, uh, July 4th. We had a big cookout, and then we passed out all of these glow-in-the-dark necklaces uh, to people uh, that were at the fireworks. And it was truly uh, a really cool sight as I was walking down Wheeling Avenue, uh, and you could just see the visible kindness of our church with other people because they all had uh, different, uh, you know, necklaces that were glowing. And kids were so excited. They're like, oh, it's, it's for me. And they'd be like, it's free? And I was like, yeah, it's free. Uh, and we were able to tell them, you know, just like God's love free, uh, God's love is free, this is free also. And so they were really excited about that. And then last night, uh, we opened up Tui Pool and we invited anyone who wanted to come for a free swim, and we had about 400 people uh, that came and participated in that, uh, so we were really excited uh, about uh, both of those. Now, what this week has done is that it's really boosted our whole kind of acts of kindness or summer of kindness kind of process. So as of today, uh, we're at 1,985 uh, kind of acts of kindness uh, that we've been able to do. And again, we don't do it necessarily for ourselves um, or to make people be like, oh, that church at the jar, they're doing this. That we really do it so that God is lifted up and that he uh, is glorified in the midst of that. Now, we have uh, a particular kind of act of kindness that we're asking you to do this week. And it is to take a water bottle or bottles to bus stops. Uh, this week is going to be warm. It's going to be hot. People are going to be out waiting on the bus. And what a great way for you to go to one of these bus stops to uh, pass that to them. Uh, have a little free card. Let them know uh, if it's in your program today. Just let them know, hey, you know, we want to show God's love uh, in a practical way. So what would that look like if we blitzed all these bus stations uh, by giving them water? and the impact that that would make. And remember, uh, text or Facebook, any of the acts that you do um, so that we can stay uh, connected uh, with you and with what God's doing. Now, before we dig into the teaching, I want to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. So let's pray. Loving God, we thank you so much for all the many ways this week that we were able to be your hands and feet uh, to show your love to uh, our community. And God, we, help, we ask that you would help us this week as individuals that you would press within our minds to step outside of ourselves and to do a kind act to people, to blanket our community with your kindness. And I pray, God, that you would stir in the hearts of each person here that they would feel a burden to wanting to show kind acts to people around them. That regardless of how small it is, uh, the impact that it can make, just like these necklaces did this week. Because we really do know, God, that small things done with great love will change the world. And so now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you stir in our hearts, move in our midst, change us, teach us, so that we might learn how to be more meek and that your name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this whole summer, we've been diving into Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it starts in Matthew chapter 5, and it goes through chapter 7. And within this teaching, he's basically saying that, hey, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, this is what a Christian should look like. This is how a Christian should talk. This is how a Christ follower should act. And in particular, we've been looking at the first ten verses of Matthew chapter 5, which are called the Beatitudes, or the Blessings. And each one of them uh, begin by saying, Blessed are those who do this. Blessed are those who do that. And it goes through this whole list, and there's eight of them all together. And today we're going to look at the third one, and it'll come up on the side screen. Let's read this all out loud together. Um, on the count of three. One, two, three. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I was thinking about that word meek. 
And I have heard people described in many different ways in my life. For example, I have one buddy of mine who is a good guy, but he just kind of comes across kind of gruff, kind of rough. Maybe you have a friend like that. You know, kind of, kind of grouchy, actually. Kind of reminds you of this guy. Who's that? Yeah, Oscar the Grouch. Like, that's who uh, he reminds you of. And then I have another friend who is so kind and tender-hearted. Uh, have you ever been down south? Well, yeah, that's, that's who it is. Uh, it's Elmo. And uh, so that's who that is. And so people can be described in multiple different ways. But I thought about it this week that I've never heard anyone describe one of my friends or someone in my family as meek. And I was thinking about it for myself that no one in my life has ever come up to me and go, Chris, you're meek. You know, it just doesn't happen. And the reason is, is that meekness has kind of got a bad rap. Many times when people hear the word meek, they think of a person who is weak or a wimp or someone uh, who just doesn't have any strength. Now, the image that I want you to remember of this concept of meekness comes from a Greek word, and it's actually this concept of a wild stallion that has been tamed. So, so think about that. This word has this image of a wild stallion who has strength, but they've been tamed. Now, growing up, I had uh, some friends of mine who, uh, they raised horses. And uh, I'll never forget one day, I spent the night with them, and we walked outside, and their dad was in this horse uh, corral trying to tame a horse. And this horse did not want to be tamed. It was uh, kicking and biting, snot was like flying out towards him, you know. I mean, salivating, he was mad, angry. I mean, it was just not a nasty scene. He was kicking, uh, and he was running after uh, our friend's dad. And I thought to myself, I was like, there is no way he is ever going to be able to tame this horse. And finally, I noticed after a while, he'd, he'd go up to the horse and he'd, he'd try to calm it down and He'd pat it on its nose and then kind of rub its side and eventually was able to get a rope on it. But then once the rope came on, that horse started running around and kicking and it was just not a good scene. Well, finally, again, he went back. He got him to calm down. He got used to the rope and uh, everything was good. And then he went to the fence and he pulled off the saddle. And when he tried to put that saddle on that horse... That horse started kicking and just bucking all over the place. And I left from my friend's house that day, and I'm like, that horse is never going to be tamed. Like, that horse is never, ever going to be tamed. And it took a while. It wasn't a one-time deal. It took uh, several times. But the next time time I came back, my friend's dad was actually riding that horse. And within a few years, when we were old enough to kind of learn how to ride horses, we actually started riding that horse as well. Now, here's my question for you this morning. Why is it that a horse is tamed or broken? Why do we tame or break horses? So they can be more useful. So they can be more useful for us. And I was thinking about it that This whole concept of meekness, when you think about it, it's about this concept of this this stallion that has to be tamed. It still has all the strength that a stallion needs, but now it's tamed so that it can be used. And that's the image that Jesus wants us to understand when we think of this word meek or meekness, that it is strength under control, that you're strong, that there's strength, but it's under control. You see, folks, uh, meekness is more than just being nice. It's like actually having courage under fire. It's strength, but it's under control. 
It's a conviction with a gentle spirit that comes from God. Meekness is not something that you can gain by your own spirit, but it has to be the spirit of Jesus that comes into your life. Look at what the Bible says. It puts it this way. Christ who suffered for you is your example. Follow in his steps. He never sinned and he never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. When he suffered, he did not threaten to get even. He left his case in the hands of God who will always judge fairly. You see, to be meek means rather than trying to get retaliation and trying to get revenge, that you lift that into the hands of God for him to be the ultimate judge. And Jesus said that when you do this, when you apply this time, uh, this kind of uh, thinking to your life, that you are blessed. Blessed are the meek. But Jesus didn't just say this to us. He actually modeled it in how he lived his life. But why though? Why did Jesus model meekness? Well, meekness has always been God's way for humanity. That meekness has always been God's way for you and I. He's always desired that we live as people who are meek. Now, there's a key figure in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, a guy by the name of Moses. And you might remember Moses' story. He's the guy who brought uh, these people called the children of Israel to the Red Sea. And when they got to the Red Sea, he had faith enough to believe that God could part the sea. And the sea parted, and they went into the Promised Land. And Moses was considered this amazing leader. He was a leader of leaders. And this is what the Bible says about him. Now, the man Moses was very, what's the word? He was meek. More than all men that were on the face of the earth. So it's like God looks down, he looks at all the men. He's like, Moses is the person who has more meekness than anyone else. Now, what I want you to get is this, that with God, meekness wins. With God, meekness always wins. You can't win with meekness on your own, but with God, meekness wins. Moses is the only person in the entire Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, that is described as a person who is meek. And it's what separated Moses, God said, from every other person in the Bible. And that's the kind of heart that God wants you and I to have. Now, let's fast forward to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there is only one person who is ever described as meek. And who is that? Jesus. It's like if you're in Sunday school. I always tell my kids, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus. No one's going to say, you're wrong. You know what I mean? Like this squirrel went up a tree and, you know, it fell down and it almost died and What's the story? Jesus, you know, and the teacher will go, oh, that's true. You know, good. No one's going to tell you you're wrong with that. But Moses and Jesus are like the only two people in the entire Bible that are described as meek. Now, why would Jesus say, blessed are the meek? Happy are the meek? Why would he be calling you and I to be meek? Because he understands that if you live a life of meekness, that you live at another level. Because the world doesn't call us to do that. But he says, I'm going to take you to a different lifestyle, a different level, a kingdom type of style. And meekness is a part of that. But it's not like you can just walk out of here today. and You walk out to the parking lot, you get in your car, you take off. And you say, I'm going to be meek. I'm going to be the meekest person you've ever seen. In fact, when I put my face on Facebook, people are going to be responding, commenting, meek, meek, he is so meek, or she is so meek, I'm going to put my meek on today, you know? No, 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 no. You don't get meekness that way. Meekness is this. You look at yourself in the mirror. And you look at yourself in light of who God is. 
And in light of who God is, you are humbled by His holiness and His glory and His power. You see, practically speaking, meekness is not something you can obtain on your own. It becomes a gift from God that He gives to us. Then we practically can live out meekness in a couple of ways. One way is this. Meekness is confidence in who I am. Now you might go, what's that mean? I mean, confidence and meekness in the same sentence, what's that about? Confidence in who I am. That's what meekness can practically mean. Now, I don't mean this kind of meekness that you get from self-help seminars. You know, like, you're going to be awesome. You're going to be great. You're going to be everything you could ever imagine. You're going to, you know, conquer the world. You're gonna, and all these people are like, yeah. And what happens? They leave from that all juiced up by everything that someone's saying. And then they become prideful and arrogant. They go, yeah, I am better than some other people. Now, I saw this very clearly uh, a few years ago. My dad and I were down in Florida with our family. And uh, we just luckily through a whole host of circumstances uh, that was not of us, um, that we got two tickets in uh, 2010 to go see the Colts in the Super Bowl. So in 2010, that's what we did. Now, if you remember, who did the Colts play in 2010? No, not the Bears. That was in 2005, okay? Who was it? That's right. It's the New Orleans Saints, right? And it was like going to be this real big battle, the Saints and the Colts. And uh, you had to go through this big, long kind of security checkpoint before you get in. And as my dad and I are walking up, we got all our cold scare on. All of a sudden, we start hearing this. Who dat? Who dat? Who dat say going to beat some saints? Who dat? Who dat? Who dat say going to beat some saints? And you heard that for the next three hours before the game began. And I'm thinking to myself, I cannot take this very much longer. Now, my dad and I, we were in the top row. I mean, they had us like this. You couldn't even see half the game, but we were there, you know what I mean? And remember what happened in the first half? We took them to the cleaners. I mean, the culture were just killing them. And we're like looking around going, you wait till the end of this game. We're going to be like, who that? Who that? Who that say going to beat some Colts? You know what I mean? And uh, we're getting all excited. And do you remember the first play of the second half? What was it? An onside kick. If you have nothing to, to know about football, basically what it is, it's a little, little sissy kick. But the other team gets it. And from that moment on, they killed us. I mean, it was destruction. And there is nothing worse than going to a Super Bowl when you've never been and you'll probably never go again in your life again. And you go. And your team loses. Because as you're walking down, all we heard was, Who dat? Who dat? Who dat say going to beat some saints? Who dat? Who dat? Who dat say going to beat some saints? There was a nun. I kid you not. She was right beside me. She was from New Orleans. I looked at her. I said, Hi, sister. Where are you from New Orleans? Then all of a sudden, Who dat? Who dat? I was about ready to hit a nun. I mean, I was so upset. And I vowed to myself on that day that if I ever heard any Saints fans here today, good. Now, I vowed that if I ever heard that again, I would meekly punch that person in the face. But in meekness, in meekness. Now, this is not the type of confidence, this cocky confidence that we're talking about when we think of meekness. But rather, it is a confidence in who I am but in light of who God is. Now let me get personal here just for a moment. What am I? I am Christopher John Bunch. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. And I have evil thoughts. I misuse my words often to wound the people that I love the most. I'm fearful at times. I want to be a people pleaser many times. I have things about myself that I really don't like. And if you leave me alone, I'm the king of selfishness. Now, some of you right now are thinking, wow, I got up today for this guy? 
I mean, he is messed up. I hope they have like a guest speaker coming pretty soon, you know. Or maybe Chuck would be a much better speaker, you know, than, than you. But this is the truth, folks. You should be thinking this. Wow, that sounds like me. Like if I were to be honest of who I am in light of who God is, that's me. Folks, meekness is a confidence in who I am. I'm confident that I'm not God. I'm not God. Look at what this verse says. It says, for the Lord your God is the God of all gods. He's the master of all masters. A God immense and powerful and awesome. Folks, when you read that, that's not me. Meekness is a confidence in who I am in light of who God is. A second thought about meekness, uh, practically speaking, is this. Is that there's a confidence in who I am and there's a confidence in whose I am. I mean, underneath all of my flub-ups, mess-ups, screw-ups, underneath all of my wickedness is an amazing wonder of whose I am. Do you know who? Do you know whose I am? I am a child of the Most High God. I am adopted. I've been chosen. I've been welcomed in to be God's child. What He did on the cross, I fully accept what He did for me, and I experience freedom of forgiveness because of this. And I am one of God's children. You see, folks, I'm not just His creation. There are over 7.4 billion creations of God. But I'm not a creation. I am a child of God. The Bible says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a what? You're a child of God. When I surrendered my life to Him, I took, off on, I took on a brand new identity. I was no longer that Chris Bunch who I just shared who I was, but I took on an identity of Christ, of God's one and only Son. And I become a part of that sonship. And if you're a part of His body, you become a daughter of God or a son of God. If you simply surrender your life, you recognize your own brokenness, and you humble yourself, that's what you become. And when you do this, it is not just a sign of weakness. If you humble yourself, if you surrender, if you say, you know what, he is much bigger than me, greater than I am, I am so weak, it is not a sign of weakness. Rather, it is a sign of confident humility that I know who I am, and I know Whose I am. You know, I was thinking about uh, this whole concept of confident humility. Like, knowing who I am and whose I am. And as I thought about Scripture, outside of Jesus Christ, there was one particular person that I think demonstrated this and showed this more than anyone else. And it was Jesus' cousin, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Now, this is how John's story begins. His mom, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mom, Mary, are with one another, and they're both pregnant. And they're talking about the amazing gift that God has given to both of them. And within a matter of months, they both are born, and then we don't hear too much about the two of them, but we do learn about what John was doing during this time. John's parents came to him and said, because God has called us to do this, we are going to raise him in a very different way. And he would be the last prophet, the last person who spoke on behalf of God before the Messiah, the anointed one, came, Jesus Christ himself. For 700 years, people have been waiting. They're like, who's it going to be? And they think, oh, it's going to be this guy. And no, it's not him. Oh, 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 it's going to be this guy. No, 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 it's not him. And finally, John is the one chosen to reveal to the rest of the world, this is the one. This is God's one and only son. Now, to be able to do this, he had to take on a vow. It was called a Nazarite vow. 
And this essentially meant that John was not a part of the priestly family. He was a non-priest. And he was just an ordinary guy. But he took on these vows to be set apart by God. So a non-priest would be able to say, I'm living by these vows now because I devote myself wholly to God. I give all of myself to God. And there were three vows that they lived by. The first one is this. Don't get drunk. If you're going to be a Nazarite, you couldn't be drunk. No Bud Light, no Coors Light, no Coronas, no margaritas at Puerto Vallarta today, okay? Just don't let your lips touch any alcohol. No getting drunk. The second thing that he had was he could not touch anything that was dead. Now, the reality is, at this time, if you were going to eat, how do you think you were going to eat? Call pizza king? Ring the king? No, you had to go out and kill something or get something or know somebody that did that. So imagine what his diet must have been like because he would never touch anything that was dead. Third thing, don't cut your hair. You just wouldn't cut your hair. You'd let it go as long as you wanted to. Now, some of you already are like, don't cut your hair. wonder what style that might be, okay? Well, uh, I don't know, but John the Baptist, I think, was the first person in the New Testament to have one of these. What's that called? A mullet. Everybody, I wish we went back to mullets. You know what I mean? Like, no, not so much. All right. Well, everybody loves a good mullet anyways. All right. So this is this guy. And this is his story in Mark chapter 1. It says this. So John the Baptist showed up in the desert and told everyone, turn back to God and be baptized. Then your sins will be forgiven. From all Judea and Jerusalem, crowds of people went to John. So just think, you've lived this weird kind of lifestyle. You're away from everyone. You're honoring God and all this. And all of a sudden, there are these crowds of people. And they're following you because you have this amazing message that everybody wants. I mean, he was a rock star. He was like Billy Graham Crusades. These thousands of people that are around him. Then, look at this. It says they actually told how sorry they were for their sins. Like he would say something, they're like, oh, I so, feel so bad. And then they would baptize them in the Jordan River. We have a baptism that's coming up on August 21st at Prairie Creek. And some of you are sitting here, you haven't been baptized. My question, why not? It doesn't mean you have it all together. It just means you're going down the pathway to know him. And so you should make a commitment right now. I'm doing it. This is what I'm doing. Okay, back to our story, verse 6. John wore clothes made of camel's hair. What a fashion statement. He had a leather strap around his waist, and this is what he ate. What did he eat? What's it say? Grasshoppers and honey. Let me get a little grasshopper. Just put a little honey on that. We're good to go. Yum, yum, right? I mean, this guy was doing fear factor before it was ever there, you know, and enjoying it. He had no fear. Then it says, Jesus, or John told all the people, someone more powerful is going to come, and I'm not good enough to stoop down. And untie his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, this is John. He shows up on the scene and he looks like Duck Dynasty boys. I guarantee that 20 years ago, there was not a single marketing firm that thought, Duck Dynasty is going to hit it big. You know how many of them wish they would have been on it now? And they're popular. And everybody knows it. And John the Baptist, he walks into the scene and everybody sees him, but he doesn't look like everyone else. But everyone wants a part of whoever he is. And people are flocking and they're moved. And every time he speaks, more people come. And like I said earlier, he's like a rock star. He's Bono with these big stadiums of people. He's the number one Googled person, you know, that everyone's looking at. And he has confidence in who I am and whose I am. But instead of taking his strength and his power and making it focus on himself, he doesn't do that. He lowers himself and simply states, 
these words. John said this. He said, He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, this is a a scripture that I almost say every single day. That I must decrease, but God, I want you to increase in my life. He could have kept on trying to do his own thing. He had a lot of success. Everything's going well. He could have strength and power in this message. But instead, he chose to be meek, to have strength under power, to be humble and allow Jesus to have first place. And this leads us to our big idea, our take-home message, our sticky statement that we want to get down this week in our minds, and it's this, lower still. That when you lower yourself, when you think you've lowered yourself enough, Jesus says, would you lower yourself even more? John modeled the importance of this, to lower ourselves, to humble ourselves, and to allow Jesus to be increased and for us to be decreased, to become lower still. And yet if you think about this, this smacks right in the face of everything that our culture tells us to do. Our culture doesn't tell us to be meek and to be lower still, to decrease. No, 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 no. It doesn't say that at all. It says, if you're not getting your way, lash out. If someone cuts you off in traffic, you lash out. If you don't get the right service at a restaurant or at a department store, you should lash out. The moment that someone criticizes you at work or in your family, you lash out. And you don't think lower still. What you think is revenge. How can I get back at him? You look at him and you're like, oh, you messed with the wrong man. You messed with the wrong woman. And you can lash out right back after them. And the world tells us to lash out. It tells us that if you're going to be strong, if you're going to be powerful, if you're going to be tough, then you've got to lash out. And Jesus debunks all of this, and he says the powerful ones are the ones who have strength, but it's under control. A willingness to decrease so that God might increase. A tendency to always be lower still, regardless of what people say, than to lash out. The ones who don't lash out, the ones who don't fight back, the ones who are lower still, remain gentle and kind in all circumstances, those are the ones who will be blessed because blessed are the meek. Several years ago, a couple from our church who had become big leaders in the church, they left. But when they left, they didn't leave quietly. And they started talking about me and my wife and the church. They gossiped about all kinds of stuff, and they took off. And this was the biggest hurt that I've ever had from anyone in the jar before, just taking my name through the cleaners. And for the longest time, I, um, I had this bitterness and resentment and anger kind of towards the two of them and their family. But over time, God kind of helped me to... To not control that, not to have close fists, but to have open hands to release it to him and allow him to take on my own struggle. And I was able to do that, and I have. But have you ever noticed this? That if there is someone who has hurt you really bad, that all of a sudden, Muncie, Indiana gets really small. And you start noticing them everywhere. I mean, everywhere you look. And for several years after they left, everywhere I look, I'm like, oh, man, God, what are you teaching? Release, release, you know? And it was very, very difficult. Well, this past winter, my oldest daughter, Jordan, won the spelling bee at her school. And uh, when she won, she had to go to the regional bee. And this was at the regional bee. And at the Regional B, when you get there, there are these microphones and uh, there's all kinds of pressure and there's all of these kids that can spell words that, honestly, they should not be words. You know what I mean? But they know how to spell them. And uh, she gets there and she is the only second grader there. Everyone else is much older than her. And she starts freaking out and she starts panicking and she's not sure she can do this. And she's 
crying and tears. And I'm like, hey, sis, come on, let's get out of here for a second. So we get out of uh, the auditorium where all these cameras, it was going to be live on PBS. We get out, we go to the elevator, and I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm doing right now, but we're going to the basement. So I push the basement. We go down into the elevator. There's nothing in the basement, absolutely nothing. I go out there, and uh, we, I go, well, Jordan, I just want you to know, you can do this. No, I can't, Dad, I can't. No, I can't. No, 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 you can do this. No, I can't, no, I can't. And then, you know, well, you know what? Just do your best. That's all you got to do. And I want you to know, before you even spell a single word, that your dad is proud of you. She's like, okay, Dad. And uh, we prayed together. I kind of encouraged her a little bit. And it was one of those times where you do all of the things and it actually takes. Like, I'm sure some of you are parents. And sometimes, you know, most of the time you do all of those kind of things. And then at the end, they're still anxious and scared. And you think, what have I done? Like, I haven't done anything. But she was good. She was good to go. And so we get back on the elevator and we go back up. And it's like, it's a moment. It's like one of those moments that if you're a parent, there are some moments that you never forget because you were so intimately connected and what you did was right and you feel so great about it and everything's going well. And we get on the elevator, we come up and the doors literally, they open like this and guess who is standing right on the other side of that elevator? That woman! Now here's the thing. Maybe for the first time in my life, I'm not sure, the doors opened, and I saw her. And I was not resentful. I wasn't angry. I wasn't mad. In fact, I was joy-filled. Jordan and I had this great experience. And I go, hi, and I named her name. And she looked at me like this. She goes, and just walked away. Like I didn't even exist. Like if the elevator doors would have went back like this, she would have been fine with that. And I looked down at Jordan, and Jordan's like, what's that about, you know? And I'm like, ah, you know, there's a word for that. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you can, if you'll spell it today or not, you know. And so, you know, it's kind of that difficult kind of thing. And Jordan goes and she spells one word right and then she doesn't spell anymore. And they spell like all the way, I don't know how many words they spell. And finally, my youngest daughter, Jordan, or my youngest daughter, Shiloh, she's done. She's like, she's out, Dad, let's go. And... Jordan wanted to stay there to encourage all the other people to tell them that they did a good job, and, which I think is great. She teaches me a lot because I was ready to go with Shiloh. And so we go back out into the lobby, and Shiloh's running around. And uh, finally we stop, and all of a sudden the doors open up, and it's the person's husband. And they walk out, and they look at me, and I'm like, hi! You know, like, you know, like Walmart greeter. Hi! Like, who yells at a Walmart greeter? You know what I mean? Like, hi, how you doing? And this... I'll never forget this. Ugh. That's exactly what I did. He went, ugh. And he just kept on walking. And I thought, I was an ugh, and the elevator was closing, and they were fine with it. But there was something in my spirit on that particular day that I honestly could say, I was meek. I was able to be lower still. I wasn't upset. I wasn't angry. I wanted what was best for them. And I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but I actually pitied them. And I don't mean pity in a way of arrogance, like, oh, poor. I mean in the way that Jesus did. Sometimes he would look at people and he would be like, I pity them because they're just carrying something they don't need to carry anymore. Now, let me say this. That was one of the few times in my entire life I was ever meek. Okay? Most of the time, that does not happen. But this time, it did. Now, in the midst of all this, what would it look like if everyone in the jar walked through their day with a spirit of meekness? What if we walked through with this meekness that people would point and look at us and go, oh, they go to the jar, that's where some weird people go. Because you know what? If you cut them off in traffic, they just smile at you and they wave with like all five fingers, you know? Like not just one finger, but they wave with all five, you know? And, you know, those people at the jar, they're kind people that if you go to a restaurant and you get bad service and 
for some reason, you know, you're busy and you're getting hammered by all kinds of stuff, they still encourage you and they tip you well even then. In fact, those people at the jar, they live out Jesus' teachings that even if you insult them or you insult their family or you even insult their God, they'll still pray for you. This is just the kind of people that they are. What would it look like if all of us lived that way? Honest question. Which path are you going to take in your life? Are you going to take a path of meekness or a path of pride? Because every day, you and I come to crossroads where we have to choose. I'm going to be prideful or I'm going to be meek. John the Baptist, he had this path of meekness in which he chose to decrease so that Christ would increase. He said, I'll become lower still rather than trying to be higher up than someone else. And in doing all of this, this is what finally happened. He lost his life. But in losing his life, this is how Jesus described him. Jesus said this about John the Baptist. I tell you that no one ever born on this earth is, what's the word? Greater than John the Baptist. No other person And the entire planet is as great as this guy, John the Baptist, because he gets kingdom living more than anybody else. And Jesus reminded us that we can experience that same kind of thing in our life. Because verse 11 doesn't stop there, but it goes on to say this. But whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is, what's the word? Greater than John. You see, this is the truth. John died a horrible death, and he never got to see the fulfillment of what Jesus experienced. But you and I, we know that he went to a cross, but three days later, he rose again, and he has new life, and he's prepared a different kind of kingdom for us that we live here on earth and that we're promised after this. But the question again becomes, which crossroad will you choose? The crossroad to meekness or the crossroad to arrogance and pride? Jesus tells us that you will never be meek unless you put him at the center of your life. You'll never be able to have a kind of meek spirit if you don't allow him to be the center of who you are. Because this is the truth about me and it's the truth about you. What we have is a nature that wants to promote ourselves, increase ourselves, make ourselves better and higher up than the people around us. You know, many times we think that it's the prideful, the forceful, the strong, the powerful that gain the whole world. And that's not what the prideful path leads to. If you stay on the prideful path long enough, it always leads to losing your soul. And that's why he gives us this beatitude. Blessed are the meek. But he knew this. He knew that there was no way that if he just said that, that we would go ahead and do it. So he had to give us a promise. He had to give us a reward. And he says, blessed are the meek for what? What's it say? Though inherit the earth. He says, if, if you live this kind of lifestyle, you inherit the world Not just here while you're here, but I have something better and greater promised for you in a new world. A different kind of world. The next world in heaven. And Jesus says, if you are meek today, tomorrow you get experience that. You inherit the world. You inherit God's kingdom. Meekness leads to inheriting the world Pride leads to losing your soul. And if you stay meek, you'll live out Paul's words when he said this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. What would your life look like if you walked through every single day and said, 
They're better than me. I'll consider them to be better than me. What if you saw the person who is homeless and you lowered yourself and you said, they're better than me. What if it's an arrogant kind of religious person who thinks they're all that? You could say, yeah, they're better than me. What if the person cuts you off in traffic or says something bad behind your back? They're better than me. Jesus promises that if we bless, that he will bless us if we are meek. And that our reward is we inherit heaven itself. So this week, I hope this image comes to you often of which path will you choose? We choose to be meek so that you decrease yourself, you become lower still, you inherit the earth. Or do you have pride and do you increase yourself and you become higher up? And finally, if you do that path long enough, you lose your soul. So, what's the choice? Which one will you choose? You know, I was thinking about it this week and I want to challenge you just for the next six days, seven days, is that each morning that you wake up, that you would say, God, help me to be meek today. Help me to lower myself, whether it's with my family, co-workers, friends. And Jesus, today, help me to allow you to be the center of it all. Let's stand. Jesus as the center of it all. And Jesus as the center of it all. From beginning to the end. And it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus. And nothing else. close with that song because I realized that if Jesus isn't the sinner, you'll never become a meek person. You'll never have strength under control. You'll always be prideful. But that's not the life that Christ calls us to live. So I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. If, if meekness is something that you struggle with and you need someone to pray for you to become a more meek, pe- uh, more meek person, invite you to come and they'd love to pray with you. And so uh, let's pray and uh, we'll close out. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would work in our lives this week, that we would become meek like you were, Jesus. Not weak or feeble or like a doormat for people to walk on. That's not what meekness is. But it's about strength under control, power under control. So that those around us would see in us and they would feel that Jesus really is the center of it all, of everything in our life. 
So help each person here today, God, the hearts of every man and woman to have a desperate need to just realize that I need to lower myself because in light of you, God, I'm not even close. And I realize that some of you right now, you're, you're facing some struggles in your life. Wherever you're at, you're, you're battling something right now. And there's a temptation that you think you're never going to get over it. You've got a problem that's too big for you. And you need God. And you need to meet God. But you just keep kind of walking down a prideful path. And maybe today is the day where he would finally speak to you loudly enough that you would say, I'm done. I'm done going down that path. Because that path, it only leads to losing my soul. And I want you to save my soul. So right now, kind of in a moment of humility and meekness, I invite everyone to pray this prayer after me. And for some of you, maybe it'll be the first time you've ever prayed a prayer like this. But for some of you, you need a refresher of walking down that path. So just repeat after me. I need you, God. I need your strength. I need your presence. I need your power. I am weak. I am a sinner. Jesus, take my life. I want you to be the center of it all. I need you. I give life to you. Take my life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's go crazy with uh, welcoming those individuals that prayed that for the first time. Welcome them in the family of God. And if you uh, prayed that prayer for the first time, please come up, get a Bible. We have one for you as a free gift. Otherwise, have a great week and know that you're loved in this place. Thanks, sir.